Dive into the world of dance at the Victorian College of the Arts. Their program offers a unique blend of artistry, performance, and choreographic practice within an inclusive environment. As an undergraduate student, you explore contemporary dance, physical theatre, ballet, urban dance, and more in a collaborative studio lab setting. At honors level, specialize in performance skills, choreographic practice, or dance research. Plus, benefit from the proximity of local choreographers and companies, including Philip Adams, Stephanie Lay Company, Lucy Guerin, Chunky Move, and Dance House. Through professional placements, their students have the opportunity to develop pathways for their future careers through these relationships and networks. Consider a variety of bachelor, masters, and even doctorate programs available according to your needs. Join them and unleash your artistic potential at the Victorian College of the Arts. Learn more through the link in the descriptions below. Uh, <laughs> mi- uh, CNBC reported four million people left their jobs, and there were ten million new job openings in 2021 alone, despite the pandemic. Right, and those are staggering numbers. Hello and welcome to the Background Dancer. I'm your host Jason Yap. Thank you for joining me with our community of passionate dance contributors from around the world and across different fields. In this podcast, I offer educational conversations and insightful tips to help you better understand all things off stage about this curious art form. Education is perhaps the most fundamental element in a dancer's journey, from their first steps in the studio all the way through their first steps into full-fledged professional life. At the end of the day, the level of education one undergoes significantly affects their prospects of succeeding within this field. But how so? Why so? Where so? And when so? And what are some of the pitfalls one could and should avoid at all costs? Listen in and enjoy. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I want to leave some of my, <clears throat> I guess, what I want to bring up for the the tail end of of my discussion of what I want to talk about today, because really, what I'm going to be discussing is more of story time and also just conversation with the two of you and incorporating some of your answers. But overall, I I totally agree. I mean, it's it's a real challenge when. A lot of these systems are overall just directing, you know,、uh, performance-driven practices that are based solely on more of, you know, like let's say funneling these students or these graduates into programs or companies that are of their own, rather than teaching them how to be able to create their own ventures or to be able to do their own, I guess,、uh, judgment or decision making when it comes to creating their own piece of the world, right, or whatever their jobs are going to be. And what I mean more so on that is just really kind of piggybacking off of what you were saying, Jason, where you know negotiation isn't really discussed or talked about enough within education. I mean, the programs are set up to teach you how to perform, and teach you how to audition, and teach you how to go into、uh, programs and businesses or companies that are already set up, which can be very profitable,、uh, you know, because this is just fueling more, you know,、uh, I guess. Uh, talent, more、uh, ability, more people to focus on what's already created rather than what could be new, and I think that's something that can be halting, you know,、uh, innovation and overall progression in
what this system could be because when I left university, uh, learning how to set up my own resume, where to get my headshots, uh, how could I start my own business? How could I negotiate, you know, uh, an offer on a job? I think that's something that's incredibly lacking within the overall education system. And it's like they, uh, well, at least where I went to school at UC Santa Cruz, um, it was very much uh, theory-based rather than a uh, performance or practice-based, right? Like a learn-by-doing format. So I felt as though I left school, I came down here, and uh, sort of the joke that I was saying to Joshua earlier of, you know, a lot of these uh, Americans, like myself, left university and said, hey, I have a piece of paper. I worked on it for four years. Give me a job. <laughs> and that doesn't really work in this world, right? And I think a lot of us go through that process at a young age, learning exactly, okay, well, how do we create our own piece of the world or what do we want to do differently rather than, you know, the typical, of, yep, I'm going to go find a job and that's going to be my job that I take on for however long I can take it on and, you know, keep working and building onto that until hopefully maybe I land the next job or I move on to something else. But, you know, creating your own venture here, which used to be what was considered the American dream really isn't as existent anymore. Although there are, different programs and different, you know, laws and bills put into place to be able to help fuel that sector of, you know, uh, employment or business here. Um, it's, it's kind of a dying, dying practice or breed here is, you know, the, the independent venture. Right. So I think that's, it's kind of interesting to think about how that has maintained itself rather than transformed in its own way, right? It's almost like, you know, there's so many people coming into the workforce, as you were saying with the auditions, right? So many people who are ready to audition, ready to audition, ready to audition, um, but there aren't enough opportunities. And I think that's because people are, are much more geared towards finding help or work elsewhere rather than creating their own. And I think it's an interesting topic that I would love to dissect a little bit more um, in my discussion. Mm-hmm. And I think these are both great inputs and I what it's making me think is with in terms of negotiation and the skills that maybe I wish we all knew earlier I think what's lacking in dance education is also making dancers feel more empowered as they graduate and enter the workforce and I think that's something I wish I knew earlier in how to set my own standards or I guess it comes into negotiation as well as how do I value what I have built on these past four years and create exactly what I want to do? And I feel like had I known this earlier, I would not have, you know, taken some jobs that I did for very low paying things. Because again, when I look at the dance industry, why I want to focus on the macro lens is there is value to what we do. There is, you know, a certain level of commodification and value setting that dance has as entertainment as an industry and i know i didn't share it now but the arts and culture sector has contributes significantly to any countries or regions economic um, well-being so having said that i do think people recognize this you know many institutions the power system is always a little bit skewed stacked against the individual dancer but I think if we know this, if we now, if I went into it knowing all of this, the, my value in myself, and also the skills to apply all of this and negotiate properly, I think I would have been taken less advantage of maybe. And, you know, because 
why do employers or why do you know entertainment industry want dance in their TV ads or something? It has value, but most dancers are not able to negotiate that. So you know, there's a lot of <laughs> what do you say? Um, taking advantage of young dancers who don't really know their worth. So I think that's something that needs to change in the dance education system. Because a lot of times, it's changing a lot. I see a lot of change. When I talk to teachers and other places, I do see a shift in pedagogical approach. But I do think we have to start dismantling a little bit of this hierarchical system of, oh, we're going to feed people into the education system. Or that, you know, there's always institution on top or the choreographer, director on top, and then a dancer. Um, I think once we start shifting that and really empowering dancers as they are about to graduate, I think we can make a big shift because the world is big enough to have all of us in the dance field is my thinking. I believe in abundance, so I really think that. And I think that's a great way to segue into Jason's questions on the com commodification of dance. And maybe, Jason, you can come in on that. Hey, Jason here with a special message for you to help and continue serving our beloved performing arts community. So here's what you can do. Share this with one person you believe with this episode can benefit and attach a personal note explaining why. This way, you are not only helping me grow this show, but also adding value to those you truly care about. Massive appreciation as it means the world to me and let's get right back to the show. All right, thank you for that, Joshua. All right, so yeah, thank you so much again, once again, for the input, both of you. Like, I'm going to start off with a little story here, and this is much more tied to this idea of negotiation, right? Social skills, career skills in general, which I'm a huge advocate of. Um. As we all know, Corona has impacted our lives significantly over the past two to three years. Uh, there was a hiring freeze for, let's say, the entire dance industry. And of course, when a catastrophic, <laughs> let's say, event happens, uh, especially like a pandemic, the first ones to always go is the arts. And we all know that. So, okay. Now, it's messed up, man. About, it's messed up. <laughs> right. It's messed up. And of course, you know, America being the biggest media platform in the world, <laughs> you know, uh, talks about this a lot, you know, documents this very well that uh, the recession that we're experiencing right now, I think has already trumped that of the Great Recession. Now, the most surprising thing that I've also learned is something accompanied the Great Recession that maybe a lot of people were not as vigilant to. And that is the Great Resignation. So the Great, Res the great Resignation, uh, I think, I don't know what the numbers were, but at least I think 4 million people. I was one of those 2021. numbers. Yeah, 2021, <laughs> I think. Uh, four, uh, CNBC reported 4 million people left their jobs. And there were 10 million new job openings in 2021 alone, despite the pandemic, right? And those are staggering numbers because uh, this, of course, is you know across different industries. But what it does tell me, and what I've learned is, for example, uh, the tech industry has suffered quite a lot. So one of the reports that I saw was a bunch of tech people leaving tech tech giants like Google, like Twitter, like 
I don't know, I think the other one was Intuit or whatever, like basically huge, huge Uber, another one. Yeah. So people who are interviewed left the jobs. And of course, uh, a lot of them were looking for much better work-life balance, if there's ever such a thing, uh, learning opportunities. One of the reasons also that came up was uh, tech on tech people are very much like you know solos solo solo people <laughs> they like to <laughs> they're most often sort of stigmatized or at least portrayed as people who like to sit in their rooms and you know code all day all day long right create the next revolutionary product and stuff and what tends to happen is that a lot of these people left their jobs really high paying jobs great paying jobs hundred thousand at least per annum. Uh, because they wanted to start their own thing, start their own venture. And it struck to me because <laughs> I think tech, on tr- tech people have something in common with artists. We are often solo people as well. At least we start off like that way and then we build communities, we build companies and such. So that leads into... <laughs> there is no, Of course, there is no great resignation in the arts world. <laughs> It's more like the great clamoring for jobs, you know, instead of the great resignation. The great cry for a job. <laughs> the great cry for a job. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> but it, it does tie into all these skills that we talked about, like how to negotiate, how to be autonomous. And it all leads back, once again, to education, right? So where I, I'm going to post my link here. And it's it basically is titled, Is American Modern Dance a Pyramid Scheme? Oh my gosh, like that's quite controversial, I understand. Uh, but it does, pr- it does prove a case in point because what it's really looking at is the academic ecosystem, the academia, right? Academia and dance, which has over the years, I think, grew in stature, has occupied a large chunk, a large bite of the pie when it comes to the economics of dance. In fact, a lot of our industry stands on the basis of the dance institutions that exist because yes. once again everybody has to go through that what's that uh that that carousel right everybody goes through it whether be it a student be it a, a lecturer a dance educator be it a choreographer looking to make new work be it an administrator uh, a, a possible executive of an institution Basically, everybody has to go through that because that is quite central to providing, let's say, the next generation or the current generation of artists. Now, <laughs> one of the headlines of this article, as you can see, uh, says this. There's no money in being a dance maker. However, there is money to be made when training new ones. It's so ironic in that sense. I, I love this. Ooh, ouch. This, <laughs> this, this I know, title, right? Like, oh my God. <laughs> this title of this article, not even the article, just the link I'm looking at right now, is American Modern Dance a Pyramid Scheme, just strikes a chord with me because I feel like all of us here in this chat room can understand the whole idea of, oh, join me and I can take you to the top. Just give me some of your time and I'll take you right to the top. Don't worry. Don't worry about what you want to do. Just join me. <laughs> yep, exactly. I love your teleprompter voice. <laughs> it's my TikTok voice. <laughs> yeah, it's such a modern choice of words. <laughs> right? Pyramid, Ponzi, whatever. Uh, the definition, to be exact, what exactly is a pyramid scheme? 
A pyramid scheme is a situation in which participants attempt to make money solely by recruiting new participants into the program. So feeding a bottom-up kind of funneling of finance, of money, of reward. So it all goes to propaganda, right? The top top echelon will talk and you know propagate to the lower echelon that yeah this is the mission this is the goal you do this well you uh, you it rewards the entire ecosystem rewards the company it rewards you but actually you know it's marginal so i this is a, a, a scathing kind of a scathing attack on on education itself because once again it goes back to the commodification of education why is it that dance education is so profitable when dance making isn't and this is why I asked mm. the question, I think in one of our sessions, I said, is, is dance more beneficial as a product or service? And of course, most of us agreed to have it both ways, that it should be a product accompanied by a service. Now, education makes a hell of a money because when it comes to dance education, for example, even in my old academy in Hong Kong, most of the funding does not come from the cultural and arts fund. It comes from the education fund, which... Mm-hmm. of course, significantly outweighs that of the Arts and Culture Fund. Now, when you have basically an art institution disguised as an educational institution, then, yeah, you know, uh, uh, you're going to get... In fact, it's, it's even better. You get both. You get arts and education funds, and ma- that makes the entire institution hopefully rich, uh, like incredibly rich, right? So... Uh, basically what this article is talking about mostly is that all of the top choreographers in the industry nowadays, uh, and we've seen basically a growing number of it, especially after the pandemic as well, is that they're all taking shelter, right? They're all taking shelter in dance institutions and dance academia, either as adjunct professors, temporary resident choreographers or whatever. But to be, ha- to be able to have this safe space, an office desk, right, health and social uh, insurance covered, and lifetime permanent contracts even for some, uh, really takes away this, yeah, starving artist lifestyle that has, of course, heightened because of the pandemic. And, of course, we can argue that not everybody has done that. Of course, there are select few very, very few at the top of what we're looking at that have been able to survive, even become profitable. Uh, but that's just so little. There's just so little of them who have been able to do that. Now, we talk a lot about what we do in the classrooms, what these bachelor programs, even master's programs are providing. They're churning out thousands and thousands of graduates without actually having sort of a clear pathway to a career because yeah, you know, I think dance teachers don't tell the truth, right? They don't go into a classroom and say, hey, by the way, I'm happy that all of you are here. You are contributing your tuition fees. A lot of you are going to collect a lot of debt after this that you can't pay back for compared to the STEM, the STEM industries. Uh, but good to have you here. A lot of you are not going to get jobs. Um, anyways, let's go on with the first class. I mean, so I don't know. I mean, uh, do you tell them the truth or not? Because once again, like you, Joshua, says, it's so beneficial to go through dance education, right? There's so much there to learn. Uh, you won't learn everything, but there's a lot of valuable things there to learn. And we can testify for this because we went through that. And I, for sure, I went through psychological education and then dance education. I got to say, still, the dance education aspect of it was so crucial, so critical to my current, you know, way of working, right? The viewpoint I have of the world. Uh, so, 
this is very much what the article is talking about, um, how people are continuing this sort of cycle. It's, it really does sound like a pyramid scheme, you know, because uh, one of the questions that is always asked is that, okay, fine, we have so many graduates, we have so many newer, more and more people coming into uh, dance education because not just, well, the students, not just the students who are having awareness, growing awareness that dance and arts is beneficial to well-being and blah, 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 blah. Actually, the parents, <laughs> the parents themselves are more willing to send their kids to all these programs because of, yeah, I don't know, their belief that it's a good investment, right? And we're talking about private investment. We're talking about private institutions. There are not many government-supported even like dance uh, institutions in the world. Um, and most of them I know are privately funded. So that that is another layer on its own. Uh, whatever the case is, the question still comes back to why aren't we building more audiences then? Right? We still keep going back to, and, and, and all the answers are within the article. Basically like, okay, yeah, you have the freshman year, they come in, they bring their families, they bring their friends, and when the graduating year finishes, they will go on off into the world, and a lot of them will leave the arts. Hey, but don't worry, there's a new freshman year coming in, so <laughs> we lose 5%, we'll get another 5 next year. It just keeps on going like that over and over again. Uh, one thing that really struck out to me is that dance students in all these academies, they, they, don't, they will never understand, or they, never, they, they will very seldom realize how exactly... How important it is, number one, how important it is, and where are we at in terms of building audiences? As a dance student, you will mm, never have mm. that problem. You will never have that problem because people will come to watch you because they support you. That's it. Your friends and family and all the people who are basically uh, entrusted with this obligation to do so, right? In your year, in your year group, let's say you have four years of the program, year one to year four will come and watch you. <laughs> in fact, yeah. if you have other departments, visual arts, drama, if you're in that kind of academy or that kind of conservatory, they will come and watch you too. So until you go into the world, until you go into the workforce, then you would realize, oh my gosh, it's so bloody hard to build an audience that is loyal, that actually finds true value in what you do and allows you to experiment with your growth. No, that, no. That's, that's crazy. That, that's, that's hard. Not everybody wants, allows you to do that, right? So at the end of the article, uh, there was this very, very potent expression from the writer whom I'm definitely going to check out after this. And basically, the person said, uh, let me find it. Uh, where is it? Um, okay. Yeah. So it says, it's time that these institutions stop training dancers, like Joshua says very, very eloquently, stop training dancers for careers that don't exist. <laughs> and and start training Ouch. them to be effective ambassadors of the field. So the key word here is ambassadors, not dancers. Ambassadors for the field. Why do we need more ambassadors? Because ambassadors are the ones who promote, have intrinsic value to continue contributing to the field regardless of what they do. It's really about the message. It's really about the passion. It's the embodiment of the art rather than the profession itself that dictates how much value, how much time they invest within their particular scope. But we don't train and we do not produce ambassadors. 
people become ambassadors as a result of their experiences in the industry. And that takes bloody hell. That takes years, years and years of failure, of hardships, of realizations. And I think this is very much a call, a call out to institutions around the world to say, okay, you can already start doing that at an early age, right? Like there are some people who go into dance education already maybe having that kind of calling that they are meant for something different and not saying like, oh, you can't be a dancer. You're like, we always talk about this, right? Like if you, if you become a dance administrator, you're basically a failed dancer and stuff like that. But oh, okay, that's just, I'm calling bullshit on that. Of course, I'm calling bullshit on that. It's fooey. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, ambassador, this, this thing about ambassador, it's so fluid as an identity. And when we talk about ambassadors, yeah, you know, I think when we see other industries, ambassadors are getting younger and younger. Uh, why is that not happening mostly for dance? And of course, when we talk about dance, well, I've seen a lot of ambassadors that are very successful. Most of them are still kind of dancers. They're not really sort of, they haven't put down that profession entirely yet. Uh, and very few have actually um, done so willingly, I think. So, uh, yeah. Can I, I just tune in and cut in and take it on? I think that's such an important topic that you've, touched on in dance education and what I mentioned earlier in how can we empower dancers is we really need to make people or young dancers even all dance advocates and that's a thing I'm trying to develop and coin as I read this book by Ali Duffy called Careers in Dance, Best Practices and Strategies for a Fulfilling Dance Career. And there's a section where she wrote about the importance of dance advocacy and why we need to really educate and have people dedicated to educating audiences, one, working with institutions and working with government so that we can advocate new strategies for to so that our systems, our, you know, our education systems and political government systems can adopt pro-arts policies. And I'm doing a terrible job summarizing what she said, but I think this is a huge part of that we need to bring in to empower younger dancers and also to grow our field is to bring that in. And mm. something you briefly mentioned earlier as well and why, like, you know, what was my train of thought? Oh, um, what I want to touch on as well is how can we lessen the barriers to entry into a dance career? Like, who is a dancer? Because I think a lot of times also, you know, as you're training in the education system, there are so many hierarchies in place, like, oh, this is the D dancer or this is the company. And in an education system, you know, the old system obviously loves fueling a little bit of competition in the dance school, like, oh, this is the good student. This one gets the solo. This one gets is going to be fed into the resident company. You know, all of these things are there. So when people come and graduate and in building their own audience, I think a lot of people feel an imposter syndrome of who am I to do this? I have not made it. And quote unquote, mm. you know, a lot of dancers wait to make it in their industry. But I think we really need to find a way to bridge our own audience and find value in what we have to share and offer to our audiences as well. So I think that's something you did a really good job that you touched on 
Of course, there is also that danger of, of why you need to get a dance education first, because anyone and everyone can set up a dance studio and, you know, teach. And a lot of times this is where people get injured because pedagogical practices are not at a certain standard. I feel like I, I was debating whether I should talk about that or not, but it's too big for me to condense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, like it's, it takes a long time for people to step up and own their own position as, yeah, you are a dancer in your field. And because a lot of times we still wait for validation from our peers, from institutions, from, you know, from all these people, but there is no audience over there. So really build your own audience is something I want to encourage anyone who might be listening. And, yeah. So there you have it, round five of our Clubhouse discussions. Why Dance by Jcast, only on the Clubhouse app where you can find all the full episodes. If you've enjoyed everything so far, be sure to go over and check us out. Don't forget to also leave your ratings and reviews for the Background Dancer podcast. Remember, we are building slowly to season two. So stay tuned for any updates that we have over here. Reach out to us either on socials or through the Background Dancer website at backgrounddancer.com. In our next episode, we explore dance and community. Stay tuned and we'll see you in the next one. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe, comment and leave a review on your designated podcast and social media platforms. If you found this interesting or helpful, feel free to share with members of your community so that they too may connect with us in our quest to foreground dance in the background. I'm Jason Yup of The Background Dancer and as always, catch you next time. If you're listening to this, you are most definitely a dance enthusiast maybe even one for dance science. Well, why not join the International Association for Dance Medicine and Science, or IADMS for short, and become part of a global community dedicated to supporting dancers and performers worldwide. With active members from over 50 countries, including experts in dance, medicine, and science, IADMS provides a diverse network of support and resources. As a member, you'll gain access to exclusive benefits such as discounts to year-round events, their vast collection of e-learning opportunities, and a subscription to the Journal of Dance Medicine and Science, amongst other incredible and unique offers. Join the mission for better outcomes and apply for an iAdams membership today. Click the link in the descriptions below for more info.